Welcome to the NY Patriot Show. In this episode, I got Lisa with me, co-hosting. What is up, Lisa? Thank you very much for jumping on, especially Absolutely. in such a Thank short notice. Oh, of course. No, it's always, a, it's always a pleasure to have you on. And I'm sure as people can see just from the title of this episode or this show, uh, I have the OG himself, um, probably one of the most uh, returning guests on this show in the Occult Rejects. I got the man, the myth, the legend, William Ramsey from William Ramsey Investigates. William, would you like to say hello and let everybody know who you are just in case they don't by now? Hi, I've uh, just been kind of like an independent researcher for a long time. I've written five books. I just put out a new book on the Smiley Face Killers last month. Um, and just kind of grinding along. My web, my uh, podcast is in the top 0.5% podcast, yeah. like the top 15,000 in the world. So you can check that out at William Ramsey Investigates. I remember at one point you were in the top one. Now you've... That's wild. Yeah, I moved up. Good for you. Good for you. That's that's some that's some impressive stuff right there. <laughs> um, I've been busy. Yeah, I've been busy. And you have um, you give you some time now if you want to. You have also released a you know rather new book, didn't you? Yeah, I put a, kind of put all my research into the Smiley Face Killers. I made two documentaries on the subject, but so much happened in the la- and we've done a show on it. Good. So much has happened in the, just the last year. And uh, Lisa knows about this just in like uh, Austin awesome. itself, but I was like putting it all together because it happened in Austin, Chicago, Vancouver. It was busy. Uh, all these places. <laughs> Somebody yeah, was. was. My, and, uh, I actually did an uh, an index to all the cases. And I used to say, yeah, there's over like 200 cases, but I covered, including of the other researchers who've also researched this stuff. It's up to 372 in my book alone of these types of things happening in just the last 25 years. And I think I missed probably 50 or 100. Like, I know that there's other cases that I just haven't even had time. And I have to go back through all my old files to find to put them in there. So it really is a really a incredible true crime phenomenon. And it's not really addressed, even like in a true crime genre community podcast or this other kind of just general media. I mean, there's been a few instances of people being on major TV shows like Dr. Phil, Dr. Oz, but by and large, it's been discounted, and there's been some kind of like attempts to de- debunk uh, the phenomenon is actually occurring. But I think my book pretty much proves without any shred of a doubt. That no, there's something uh, there. I think that happens there. for sure. There's something at least with that symbol being associated with death. There's something going on with some. Yeah. I've heard that it's like in somebody who's in the occult, kind of you know stuff, kind of bleeds out, but. Uh, supposed to mean smiling through tragedy so that's kind of like the esoteric meaning of it is like you know tragedy is going to happen but stay happy and i think that has to do with kind of like looking at the tragic events around these people's deaths it's like that's what it's wasn't it? it it ties into so many things in the culture I mean, yeah. it's like the comedian from alan moore that's a whole you know, subject but that's what a lot of people overlook the kind of like uh a cold esoteric element of the smiley face when they're researching the smiley face killers, they don't even include it in kind of their uh, overview of these cases. And there's a lot of like either by negligence or just outright dense, you know, kind of uh, stupidity of of just like ignoring certain facts in this whole phenomenon. So yeah, that's basically what I've been working on. So that book is out. You can get it on Amazon or my website. Yeah, I think you ship it on Friday. Yeah. Definitely look forward to reading it. I think I have the link for your books, or at least Amazon. 
in the back. Uh, I mean, in the notes already, in the show notes. So, uh, well, I just sent you a couple more files. Like maybe you can pull that up. We can go through the slides. But, okay. I mean, Sounds this good. This is going to be about Donald Camel. A lot of people don't know his name. Uh, the reason I came across Camel and I knew of him is because of his father, who I looked at the biography, and we'll see these in the slides. His father was a friend of Aleister Crowley. So when I wrote my first book in 2010, I came across his name. And, uh, his father's name, I think, was Edward or Charles. And he lived up in Scotland, where so Crowley was in Bulliskin, up by Loch, close on Loch Ness, actually. And so Charles was nearby, so uh, Crowley would come and visit and his dad this guy charles camel the father of donald uh wrote two books about alistair crowley and we'll see the titles here one i think is called alistair crowley the black magician and then um, another one and he used to sit with this man who became donald camel or he used to sit with him on his knee so this is donald camel kind of grow, growing up Yes, and for people... And he's for, a very accomplished magician. I didn't know how accomplished he was, but much more so. And moved from, and you saw that earlier painting, he was a great portraitist. He was an excellent kind of standard media uh, artist who said he wanted to make movies because... Hey, thanks, bro. Uh, he wanted to make movies because that was like the, the, the primary medium at his time, right? Of, uh, the 60s and 70s. So he moved into movies and came up with this movie called Performance, which uh, is in the kind of British uh, Film Institute's top 100 British films of all time. It's pretty remarkable. And it features people who are still around today. It has a, a guy who was young at the time. His name is James Fox and Mick Jagger. <clears throat> and uh, somebody in the kind of, what is it, the uh, Rolling Stones group Anita Pallenberg was in there and a lot of other kind of weird actors but he actually was able to get a lot of people in the mob uh, because one of the actors is supposedly in the mob so real mobsters <laughs> were in this film too get out of here no yeah so real kind of like accents and things like that super often I, I swear there's a connection with those two <clears throat> I, I really do think when it comes to the mob and the mafia and occultism there is an occult magicians or whatever there's some sort of connection I think well, the the initiation to the mafia is a is a very ritual, secret you know? society. There's blood, yeah, yeah, it's a secret society. You're gonna kiss the ring. I mean, you're basically <laughs> yeah. You burn stuff. You're, there's bloodletting often, things like that. That's what happens when you get made. Um, but yeah, so Donald Campbell made this movie performance, and it's just chock full. It's almost kind of like a pre Eyes Wide Shut because the film itself, when it was done, he gave it to Warner Brothers, and they freaked out. They were just totally terrified, and they edited it. So the one, the, the version that came to the public is not the director's cut, So, but it's still very telling. And there's all kinds of occult references. We were talking in the pre-show, there's a sequence of a uh, woman riding the beasts. So there's a symbolic thing of like Pallenberg riding on James Fox. And James Fox's son is actually in the news a lot. So there's, there's, kind of like, there's stuff from the original movie that actually didn't make like the cut? Right, so I, I featured Camel in my book, Children of the Beast, from 2014. And I mean, I can read from it here. It's just like, he, <clears throat> Camel hired East End hoodlums to help with the Fox's on-screen authenticity, authenticity. The debauchery and depravity of the film was too much for the Warner Brothers executives who oversaw its production in the late 60s. And this is a quote. They were genuinely shocked by the rushes. 
Warners were so outraged that they took the unprecedented step of closing the film down. Not only lasted a few days, but he actually enlisted, <laughs> under pressure, Camel enlisted Kenneth Anger and Stanley Kubrick to help uh, to help kind of get the film out. And it wasn't out until two years after it was shot. Oh, wow. And if you go forward, you can see kind of like the yes, posters man. for it and some of the other stuff. So that's, Tom. So that's him kind of like a straight-laced guy back in his early you know, <laughs> days in England. But he definitely... Before it all went wrong. A different time. <laughs> Before it all went wrong. That's him on the left. Turn left. That's him with James Fox. So that's James Fox at Polis Square in London. James Fox, uh, that's him. That's Camel with Mick Jagger. Nice. That's uh, him on the left. Uh, some model, I forgot her name. And this is why did the eye. This is a totally occult film about a cult serial killer. But what he would do is yes, you showed me that. Ritually you showed me that. Right. That's so this is Donald Camel's uh, last film, and he would drown people and then put this mirror, which is kind of like used in magical things. It's kind of like a mirror, mirror on the wall, like a portal to another thing and make them watch themselves drown yeah i that when you sent me that i think you had sent me like a clip or something from it and i had watched it and i was like to me i i think there was even a lot of eyeball symbolism to me because you had the guy dressed up in black who i think was a the pupil you know very weird i had and it's funny is i had no idea that that was him (laughs) you know yeah so this is donald camel so this is him and so this film uh has kind of a ritual drowning scene it has to be seen as that he like he 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 knocks the person out, puts her in, uh, wraps her in kind of like almost like a mummy sarcophagus type thing and drowns her and wakes her up so she can witness herself drowning and he can, he can show her drowning. That's pretty rough. Yeah, I thought she was like kind of maybe symbolizing like the muscles that like that control the pupil uh, screwing closed or being pulled open. <clears throat> so if you go to the next slide. It's just this is uh, I predicted Donald Camel's suicide. He was in love with that said Kenneth Anger, nineteen ninety eight. So Anger was very familiar with him. We'll see a picture of uh, Camel and Anger together as we kind of go through these slides. So there's Camel again. It's kind of lost to, to history. That's Camel with an Anita Pallenberg. I think she was girlfriends with Keith Richards or something like that. I was going to say, it wasn't like there like some sort of incident where Keith Richards was on film and she was ask- he was asking her to have some sort of scene with Mick Jagger and Keith Richards was freaking out and having some sort of like, you know, jealousy. I remember something like that. Yeah, yeah I remember that. He was really upset about it. You remember Mick Jagger I and David Bowie a- having a fling? There were stories about that, too. I yeah, his wife said a, she walked in. The set of performance was very chaotic, is my understanding, the shooting of it. I'd have to go back through and kind of look through my stuff. But, um, yeah. This is just something about Brando and Camel. I, I popped up. I could probably read from it if you want, but um, maybe go to the next one. This is the this is the book he wrote together with Brando. It's called Fan Tan. It's available online. You can watch it. it doesn't have very good reviews. That's wild, Marlon. But it just shows how kind of how close he was to Marlon Brando. That's and they wild. were planning on working together, but it just didn't materialize. And this is the end. I think this is the end. They had a pretty short life. 
62, I think, um, but when he committed suicide. And according to Sean at Wake the Dead, China Kong, so that was his 14-year-old girlfriend. Girlfriend, They wrote, I think they wrote Wild Side together, but he met her when she was 14. They eventually got married, but uh, pretty scandalous. And there are themes of pedophilia in performance that I didn't quite key into until I talked to Sean. But Sean said that when Donald Campbell killed himself, he did it to slow his death. Like he shot himself so that he would slowly die so he could watch himself die. Like it's some kind of really weird suicide. So instead of like ending it all like that, you know, like he, he made sure that he was going to have a slow death. Like that wow. was his intent. Isn't that weird? Very dramatic, so like, huh? Sean said he like shot himself in some way where, um, yeah, he didn't, he didn't black out or something. Damn. Strange. So China Kong and then the, his sister, her sister worked for Brando. So they had some kind of strange, they had a strange relationship. And then these two sisters had a, uh, relationships with Camel and Brando. Go to the next one. Sure. That's wild. Makes me think of uh, Molly Cruz Wild Side. Yeah, and, and I mean that's Anne Hache. So Anne Hache died this weird death in L.A. I don't know if you saw that, but like with a car, dro- driving a car at eighty miles an hour, acting crazy. Yeah. And then like she's dead, and then she pops out of the stretcher. Yes, and, out of the well, body bag. You sure he wasn't. You sure he wasn't going eighty-eight miles per. Possibly, maybe ninety-three. <laughs> Who knows? But it was like you know doing something. So. Maybe ninety-three. That was good. Seventy-seven. Who knows? Yeah, oh, that's funny. Yeah, Thirty. So Thirty-three is too slow. Yeah, way too slow. No, there were videos of they caught her on one of the like the you the know ring doorbell videos. Yeah, the ring doorbell. Mm-hmm. She was flying, man. She yes, was, she was. She was at high speed. Uh, Can you go to the next? Yeah, one? yeah. Sorry, that was a good laugh. <laughs> so that's the that's the uh, poster for Wildside Walkin Ish. Going too far was just the beginning of the tag. So that's Fantan. Go to the next one. Yeah. So you see Donald there. I don't wild. know what that what it's about. I think they were trying to make a movie of it, and it just didn't materialize. And then he also made Demon Seed. This is actually kind of a timely movie. I know uh, Hans Uter watched it, thought it was interesting. But it's about AI and how a uh, computer tries to become human by having, you know, relationship with this woman, with uh, Julie Christie. Um, so the machine has created a machine. Now the machine wants to create a man. You know, when you, when you start to look back, like, Look back, especially like in the 80s and 90s, I think in movies, and if people were to listen to what some of like the metal bands were even saying back then, you know, like even like Megadeth Slayer, Anthrax, like all those bands back then, they were all talking about AI. It's like, did they know something then? (laughs) They were all telling us that, believe it or not, they were all telling us that vaccinations and robots were going to fuck us in the end. So many metal bands were actually saying that in the 90s. And it's like they were right. onto something. Who would have thought you'd get a prophetic kind of uh, right. <laughs> There was like one song from Judas Priest that I remember. It's like Electric Eye or something like that. It's about like an all-seeing eye that rules over people. I remember that in the lyrics. So that's um, Camel and the lead actor, Fox, James Fox, who was in, I did a show on Utopia. Have you heard of the um, British TV show Utopia? 
I have heard of it. I just have not watched it. Well, I did a show on it. The really remarkable thing about Utopia, aside from the occult themes, a bunch of 93s and 11s. Really? Is, and the MK Ultra stuff. Um, the, the whole premise of the show is they're trying to stop a depopulation where they trick people into thinking that there's a virus out and then they pump them full of poison through a shot. It's basically everything that happened in the last three years. So go watch Utopia. <laughs> you can actually watch the British version and it features this guy on the left, James Fox. You can watch it on Internet Archive. You can find it on there. Utopia, really good. It's actually superb. It won awards. There's this is uh, Keith. I mean, Mick Jagger from like it's a still from performance. Go to the next. And he's playing here. He's playing Robert Johnson. I think it's a Hellhound on my trail, right? So Hellhound. Robert Johnson made the deal with the devil for at the crossroads, right? So there's all kinds of occult themes. Yeah, the Hellhound the assassination, assassin, Asane Sabaz in here. But, yeah, go to the next one. Do you think he was obsessed with Mick Jagger? Who, Camel? Mm-hmm. Maybe. Lots of mirrors, too. So there's, like, weird cross-dressing, male-female stuff going on, a lot of mirrors, and a lot of uh, shooting, and weird sounds, too. Like, Campbell was able to integrate sound, and Hans Uter kind of made this comment, too. Like, he knew he was doing sounds that were, like, disorienting or psychologically uh, impactful, like intentionally, like loud, weird sounds. And, and So he knew what he was doing. I can read you a quote from him. You know, like, about what... my experience, even in the OTO, they even tell you that there's times where it's like they'll do things during initiations to kind of get your attention without you even realizing it. I mean, they even come out and mention that either by touching you and activating chakras or by, like, things going on around you or sounds and shit. Interesting. Yeah, I've never I seen mean, the initiation. I've been told that Ron Rosen, I think his name was Ron Rosenbaum, or uh, filmed across at the at the tomb at Yale when they did the initiations. There were all guys dressed up in weird costumes, but screaming and shouting, like all like things that you wouldn't even think would happen, but like people shouting in the high the loud as they could. So I think that was part of the initiation for them was these kind of loud voices, and you can kind of tell the same type of thing was happening at uh, Bohemian Grove, too. Sometimes I think yeah. uh, they try to bring themselves to exhaustion as well. They yeah, I wouldn't be help. surprised. Well, that's what, that's the whole ECL stuff that Crowley was doing, right? Yeah, I do think, honestly, I do think with the way that he also stresses on vibrating certain words and then wearing a hood with no mouthpiece, I think there is a, an actual, like, we're trying to, like, run out of oxygen. Eventually. <laughs> you can go to the next one. I forgot what this was in reference to. It just was more calm. That's China Kong. So that was the girl that was married. I think she's still alive. Um, I was married to Donald Camel. Having met him when she was 14 years old and he was 40 yeah. years of age in 1974. They would wed four years later in 1976. Oh, the most crazy. noted acting role was the 1987 film White of the Eye. Kong's sister, Stephanie Kong, acted as Brando's photographer on Missouri Breaks and Superman. This sounds like some Dane Cook type shit. Like, isn't he with some chick now that, like, was, like, I think 16 when he probably met her younger than that? Like, he's known her since she was, like, illegal. <laughs> it's, like, weird. I don't know. I don't know. That's yeah, some weird shit with him and dude. Some Nothing surprises me in Hollywood. Nothing. Mm. I mean, there's rumors. I mean, 
there's things that Brando had a sexual relationship with one of his daughters when she was from very early. Like they had a secret pedophile or uh, incest type thing going on. So he Brando, uh, yeah, he was something else. Uh, there was somebody I think. Uh... I think I didn't get into it too much, but there was like some other occultist that I think I was looking to cover for the occult rejects from back in the day, and I was like reading like you know their their stuff with their family, and I was like, yo, this guy like took some girl as a wife at like fucking fourteen. So what the fuck? Like, yeah, I don't know, some sick shit. Yeah. So go to the go to the. I mean, so this is all night. So that this is Camel uh, after performance. He was asked by Kenneth Anger to be Osiris. In Lucifer Rising. So this is the end. He's dressed up as Osiris, the Lord of Death. And he's making the sign of Osiris. So you'll see people doing that. It goes in hand with all the other Luciferian uh, hand gestures, you know. Like the Typhon or the Eyeball or 666. So people will make the sign of Osiris. Um, You can probably just do a search on Google. For sure, yeah. Yeah, this isn't hard to find out. This is Son of Osiris. Uh, actually, I think in that part, doesn't it go back and forth to him and like the girl playing ISIS? They go back and forth for a while. Yeah, doing like yeah, a little... And then the aliens show up, right? <laughs> yeah. actually, I mean, we can show, we can show the, the film. I sent it to you. We can pop it up in a minute after we go through the slides. But there's kind of a ritual drowning of, um, you know, human kind of like uh, statues. Hmm. And I've never been able to figure out why they drop people. So that's camel all in green. And this is uh, his brother, I think, taking a picture of anger with the thunderbolt, you know, the symbol of the devil falling from heaven. Maybe this is where they got LARPing from. Was this movie? <laughs> Probably. Here's Don. Have you ever seen um, John Lennon's kid? I think it's Sean Lennon's. Uh, film where he apes the uh, uh, Lucifer Rising. It's really something else. No, It's super occult. <laughs> yeah, you would trip out. Let's see if I can find it. Go to the next one. So this is his dad. So his dad wrote this book, Charles R. Camel, Alistair Crowley, Black Magician. Yo, I shit you and not. I thought that was Trump at first. <laughs> I did too. I totally like did too. <laughs> yeah. I, don't know. I don't know why. I totally did too. I was like, oh wait, that's Crowley. Sorry. Right. So, um, and that picture of Crowley was from the inside of the book. So that's like the, the Charles was saying that's how he knew Crowley kind of as an older gentleman, I guess. God, that almost looks like his book shot. If he just twisted his mouth a little bit. Fuck. That's weird. <laughs> Wonder if it's because the orange of the eyes. It's probably. I don't know what it is yet. <laughs> and so this is another title Biography Charles Richard Campbell. Alistair Crowley, the man, the mage, the poet, is mm. making all those. Uh, it's the sign of uh, the Isis in mourning, right there. Isis in mourning, and then there's uh, Osiris, right? Yeah, making the sign of Osiris, yeah. just like Camel was doing. That is a uh, swastika you're supposed to be making the sign of when you do the sign of right, Isis. Right, that's right. Yeah. Which I find that that is interesting. How, like, I think I made a post about it yesterday, and I've never really, it's never really dawned on me, but like, you will have. You will make the sign of a, a swash sticker in the ritual when you're doing the LVX formula, and then you're drawing hexagrams after the fact. So it is kind of weird how you do have like the hexagram star and swash stickers in the same ritual. You know, it's just very weird to me. This is pre-Nazi Germany, right? So <laughs> it wasn't uh, associated with mass murder yet. 
That's another that's another cover. That's probably the original cover. That's another thing of Crowley. Like you would never know like his whole history of when he was in his sixties, all the nasty things that he had done in his life. He just probably looked like a strange old man. New Hyde Park, New York. Interesting. Yeah. And you see the the horse there. I'm surprised it wasn't done by... This uh, is a really important picture for a wide variety. These people all loved Crowley. I don't know so much about Hopper. I know he was associated with a a movie that... um, Oh... Uh, what was the what was the guy the jet, jet propulsion labs guy who was Crowley's number one follower? Oh, it Parsons. 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 Yeah. So he was in a movie with Marjorie Cameron. Hopper was, and so he had a connection directly to Crowley's followers. But that's Camel on the far left. Hopper. Then Yodorowsky, who was a stone cold blood drinking occultist. No joke. And then Kenneth Anger. So all these Anger was said he is a warlock. But Yodorowsky admits in writing to drinking human blood and liking it. So these guys are all heavy-duty magicians, and Camel knows a lot. I did not know when I was writing my book, Children of Beasts, how much he knew. But now that I looked through performance, he was a very accomplished occultist. But yeah, um, the, the movie that Hopper was in was Night Tide. And there's a scene of him with Marjorie Cameron, who was uh, Parsons' scarlet woman, yeah. And this is from some, they all met in Europe somewhere in like the early 70s. Interesting. So this is a full story of Mick Jagger's first feature film. And it was actually interesting because what we're going to watch later is this uh, video called Memo from Turner. And it was one of the early music videos. So the way that Campbell conceptualized this film is to have a music video attached to it. So it kind of plays in interestingly with the character who is a musician who's lost his kind of mojo. That's the whole thing about what's going on at this uh, mansion in uh, London. And so then there's a music video. Yeah. And we're going to show that music video, but you can kind of see the two characters. So you see Mick Jagger as this kind of a feat, effeminate artist, but then in this video, he's kind of like a gangster. He's hanging out with gangsters. And the same thing inverts with James Fox, who's uh, kind of a hard-headed uh, gangster who becomes, they turn him into, they actually mind control him. There's total mind control themes and really? behavior modification type stuff. They give him drugs and turn him into a, you know, wig-wearing, uh, strange, turd, like, I don't know what you call it. Like, I wouldn't call him a feminine, but like cross-dresser. They turn him into basically a crossbow. Yeah, so. That's funny. Um, go to the next. And you can see, actually, go back one more, sorry. You can see at the very bottom it says, I uh, can't read it, but I think it's, let me see if I can find it, if I can read this. It says, near Mick, hear Mick Jagger sing, sing Memo from Turner in the original soundtrack album at Warner Brothers Records. So, like, it's, it was part of the, the marketing was this, this, this song, which really never made it out. But it's like listening to Hotel California. It's full. Uh, it's all witch language, Twilight language. And we'll play that in a minute. So go to the next one. This is just 
Uh, no, this is Alan Moore mentioning Donald Camel in one of his cartoons. And then, in the name of love, Donald Camel recorded uh, was the director for U2's In the Name of Love. What is it called? I forgot what it was. It was uh, Pride in the Name of Love, right? I had no idea about that. So he directed that video. Let me go to the next small, one. Small world. And that's a picture of his father. So that's Charles Richard Camel. Interesting. And where are the this eyes? Is just yeah. artwork. And I feature. I do a lot of kind of stuff on this in my documentary, Cole Hollywood, which you can see now on Patreon. I've uploaded all of my videos on Patreon. So if you put, you know, pay five bucks, you can watch all five of my documentaries if you're bored. But yeah, this was, I did an intro for this um, sequence and kind of analyzed some of the performance, but I missed so much. But I did this show with, uh, with hands and Hans and uh, Sean. I just was like blown away. There's so much more in there. He really did. I mean, he put a lot of like occult stuff. It was all occultism, really. So go yeah, to I next. need to check out that whole movie. Oh, and then that's actually, actually that was the last. So that was one the there. end of the slides. Yeah, this is really interesting because it mentions Crowley and magic and Camel. So here he is. He goes, "My interest in magic is really a matter of being conditioned, because I was brought up in a house where magic was real. My old man Charles, long gone these years, three years, filled the house with magicians, metaphysicians." spiritualists and demons. I was conditioned by my father, by his books, by Aleister Crowley. I reacted against that at one stage. I became very materialist, obsessed by science and physics. But later I became more and more conscious that the world I was brought up in was an expression of a reality. I dug magic and wanted to find out more. The performance of magic, right? So that's why it's called performance, the film. The performance of magic is ex an extremely difficult thing Magical processes are hardly ever achieved, and we have very little experience of it outside the tribal cultures that manage it. It functions in those countries in a pragmatic material way, which is what magic is. The raising of demons for the purpose of performing in the physical world in the interests of the magician, who is ideally a benevolent person wanting to use the forces for what he conceives to be proper ends for all mankind. The interface of black and white magic is simply the difference in using powers on hand that are neither good nor bad. But at both faces, the demonic face of a spirit is as much part of it as the angelic face. Kenneth Anger is better qualified to discuss the specific relationship between magic as we know it culturally, historically, and pragmatically, which is to say performing it through a vehicle that of all of the vehicles we have invented to influence other men's minds and communicate is logically the most powerful. The moving picture with its attendant sound. So what he's saying is like his performance of magic. He wants to use the moving picture yeah. because it's the most powerful way to uh, well, get his ideas across. I mean, I, I even think like in magic and theory and practice, I think Crowley even alludes to, I think like uh, <laughs> the most powerful way to probably do a ritual would be like multiple people acting shit out and almost being very theatrical about it. So, I mean, you could, you, you could be using movies for that. All right. I have this one. I'll pull it up. Can you play it? Can you bring that up? Yes. That's Donald Camel. That's Isis. Camel. Then he kind of statuettes and drowns him. It's total. It's just a full of cold song. You're focusing on the different eyes. One. I'm pretty sure it's the next one in that uh, documentary if you want to pull that up. 
but I don't really have much else. I mean, I kind of covered everything. And now, what, okay, so my, what was the connection with my, that guy? Yeah. What's up? What was the connection? You remember you were saying there was a connection between the that video. So that video. Oh, it's just showing that that these ideas are still around because oh, okay, Lucifer okay. rising. Yeah, that was very much that, Lucifer that video is fairly uh, recent. So you know what I thought was, you can give. I thought was interesting is that um, you, in Minerva you'll end up like eating bread on oil with salt. And I was thinking, like, when they showed them eating that crystal, I mean, that could still be representing salt in a sense. The crystal. And so I'm wondering if it was actually representing, like, Minerva in there when they showed that. Yeah. Yeah, I don't really have anything else. If you want to okay. uh, pull up that other one, I'm pretty sure that's, I looked at it, that's the next video if you want to pull that up. I don't know if you want to. Though. Yeah, I'm going to try to download it. Square wasn't as good as the first square. If you, oh yeah, and there's all kinds of like, uh, like menage a trois and stuff going on. But if, with the bed scene. So that was the first scene that we did. And that, that took us seven days. That was absolutely marvelous because it was shot on a Bolex camera on 16mm on, on ectochrome and forced to develop several times. Nick put a big lamp right down on the bedclothes. So the light that was actually coming and lighting them was filtered through blankets, which was really beautiful because it had this wonderful warm feel. So we shot one roll, and I came up and I said to Nick, well, we better reload the camera. And Nick said, you've had enough fun, now I'm taking over. It's that much fun. <laughs> it looks like fun anyway, yeah. But, I mean, even with Michelle, she was so insecure by then. I mean, the reality is, like, um, different. It's, um, it's a magical film, isn't it? I think I would make a distinction between the first and the second and half of the film in terms of the acting. In the first half of the film, if you look at the script, the film is following the script actually very closely. You get into Power Square and things completely disintegrate. The original script has a huge plot line about a drugs bust. People come in and out of the house, there's a whole kind of business around it. All of that disappears in favor of Jagger, Pallenberg, and Fox, alone in the house. James Fox, the big hero of mine, there he was, you know, sitting at the table with a script from morning until evening, hardly saying a word, you know. I mean, we must have driven him quite crazy, really. Fox will tell you that was very close to what Pallenberg was doing to him all the time. You know, he was the straight guy uh, who she was mocking, guying, etc. But he did it perfectly without, you know, he's an actor, so he didn't really need to. How much did you give him? So they gave him a bunch of mushrooms. That's insane. <laughs> What's certain is there's an enormous number of reference to the most important contemporary literature, to Borges, to Burroughs, uh, to Genet, to Artaud. Uh, Camel was a very, very well-read uh, figure and the references wind in and out uh, all through the film. Well, there's a lot of things in the film. You know, if you look, you're going to find them. I mean, how many people know that this Borghese, you know, that moment happens. One percent of the audience. But that's Donald. But again, that's the energy that's in the film, isn't it? They would not have allowed such things to happen to me in the sanitarium, he thought. And he felt two things. The first... Yes. 
tremendously by Borges, wasn't it? Where does a bullet go? It goes right through him, doesn't it? The glass shatters into Borges' head. I mean, that's where Donald wanted to be inside Borges' head. Donald wasn't Borges' head. You could take the film uh, and literally go through it for literature, for painting, for, you know, film. For I mean, it's a huge repertoire of references. For music, Robert Johnson is in there. You know, there's, this is a film which really is drawing on very wide, much wider than normal. Uh, expansive culture. You don't have to know Artaud's theories about madness to understand what Turner's saying. The only performance that makes it, that really makes it, that makes it all the way, is the one that achieves madness. Right? Am I right? You with me? I'm with you. It also gives us a soundtrack. It gives us the... Um, uh, the Jack Nietzsche music, it gives us the synthesizer, which didn't even exist in 69. My dad was always looking for new sounds or combinations, always working on chords. My father was proud of the score. I think it was the first time that he was sort of given free reign to experiment, and it really energized him. He got one of the first nine Moog synthesizers ever, and he got it specifically to work on performance. and. I do remember him bringing it in the house and setting it up, and it was like a, a kid in a toy shop, you know, and just playing around with all the sounds, and I was just blown away, because I you know, never heard anything like that in, in the 60s. Before that, we had to record some backing tracks. Remember, you know, Mick sings in the film, uh, and we had to have the back, some backing tracks to go with it, so even before Jack Nietzsche came on, we had to organize some recording to be done uh, for Mick's song. Shooting Mimo for Turner was wonderful fun. It was the first music video. It was my first film as a camera operator. That's uh, so the first it music really video. At the deep end. And uh, a lot of it quite tricky, actually. It was things like Mick had to spin around and smash the butt of a pistol into the mirror, and I had to zoom in on it, which was a, it was a once because the mirror was built and was part of the building. It wasn't like now where you'd have six or seven repeats and you could do it over and over again. It was called... First take or nothing. The excitement of filmmaking uh, is the unexpected. You had just that one element that you cannot absolutely predict. I had to reshoot a scene, and that was the one with the too much B12 doesn't hurt anybody, where because by then I already had a habit, and I thought I was being very secretive about it. I didn't realize everybody knew. And so he made me do that scene. And it's B12, it's a vitamin. And then he gets a good shot of my vitamin. <laughs> but there are those wonderful, absolutely unpredictable moments just in the performance. And then the scene where I go down in the elevator with blood on my whatever, and I probably hide Mick's body. And that's probably when they decided what the ending was going to be. Hello, Chaz. It's quite clear that when they finished editing, after a long time, it was a long edit in London, uh, they had a film which Rogue, uh, Camel uh, and Lieberson, the three key people, 
uh, decide it was a film they wanted to release. We took a cut of the film to Los Angeles that we all felt was the cut of the movie that we wanted to present to Warner Brothers. And that was a disaster. <laughs> we started screening the film, and maybe halfway into it, the audience started to yell at the screen. This is the worst mother, you know, so-and-so. This is terrible. This is awful, right? The cut of the film that we took to Los Angeles and previewed in Los Angeles was a great cinematic disaster. I mean, for, for that reason alone, it should go down in the history books, I think. Warner Brothers were horrified. They were horrified by the violence, but they were also horrified by the fact that Jagger didn't appear until so late in the film. You know, here was the one thing they were betting on. Donald wanted me to cut the mo movie so that this was in the way that it now is, and I refused to do it. I said, Donald, this, it's confusing enough already for three minutes. If we do it for any longer, we're going to alienate the audience, and I won't do it. I won't do it. So, is that the end of it? Yes. That must be it. You can go, if you guys are interested, pull up the second one. Didn't people walk out of that filming or the premiere or whatever when they first showed it in California? That it, they had to pause it or something like that because people were just so upset by it. Thought I, I thought I read something like that on I it. Be surprised. But I was like, wow, that's. Yeah. Yeah. All right, I think this is the other one. Oh, here we go. Away we went to recut the movie. And Nick said, sorry, but I've got to go off to Australia. I'm making walkabout, and uh, I'm not going to f*** around with Warner Brothers and go through all that crap. And I wasn't going to stay. I had a film to start immediately afterwards. I had to leave Donald there on his own. And so did Nick. But essentially, we had to leave the film there with him trust him so camel goes off to la and starts on another long edit which takes some of the violence out and brings jagger closer to the front of the film but it also gives us that very rapid editing without which the opening of the film is almost unthinkable now the first part of that show is really slow yeah. but that you know the opening was just like that was a lot of fun i knew i'd have to kind of slide things back and forth or extend something to make it hit right on a note or on a frame and I could do three or four or five of those cuts and it would just go bang. I mean, it was just perfect. It was like, you know, a beat, you know, and it was an abstract beat. And all the beats worked wherever they were. I understand now what was going on, but, you know, I keep saying poetry. There was a sense of poetry. There, you know, there was a sense of music and meter and visual meter. Because film is visual meter, I think, you know. How did we get into that madness? I mean, how did, how did it unfold? It just unfolded. It was there for us to discover. It's like going into a, you know, some kind of a diamond or gold mine or something, and there's the vein. They wanted Mick Jagger in earlier, so, you know, we tried to figure out what do we have that was footage we didn't use that we could use just to put them on the screen, you know. And uh, we found this film. He says, Donald says, well, there's this thing where he's kind of spraying up the side of the wall, just painting. You know? So I said, let's try it. You know, so we just put that in. <laughs> But there was Mick Jagger, you know, he came in earlier, which was kind of hilarious. But it worked because the film was working. You could do anything to that film, it would work, you know, because of the way it was happening. I mean, anything that felt right, it was going to work. You know, it was just all about feeling. You know, it was, it was poetry, you know, it was organic. It was coming from the spirit. Donald and I connected on that level. And, and we pulled in, you know, 
that side of the, the ocean with what's happening in Hollywood. So two years later, the film was released. But in terms of where the film was going to open and how, that was all Warner Brothers' decision. I remember they sort of let it die out. They got scared. It was, it was shocking. Um, the reviews were not bad. Some of them were interesting, I thought. Some of the reviewers thought it was good, and some of them, of course, blasted it, you know. But there were some good reviews if you go back in that time. He didn't deliver the same film that we went to Los Angeles with, but he delivered something very special, something, you know, unique. And that thing that is unique is a result of the collaboration between Nick Rogue and Donald Camel. How we were, you know, kind of talking about the next film we were going to do. I mean, because we had such an incredible working relationship. And Donald was hot. You know, Demon Seed and Wild Side and performance. Donald was interested in making a lot of money. He just wanted to make movies, you know. And I remember the last time I saw him, this beautiful spirit came out, and he was just so gentle and, and so loving, you know, and so positive about we were going to make it work. It was like, we're going to do what we always wanted to do. Because, I mean, I had a relationship with him, what, for 20 years, you know? But I'd never seen Donald like this before. He didn't give up, you know? I just, I guess he just wanted to take it out his way, you know? The end of the film... Uh, it's strictly undecidable what's happened. Is it a moment when the two of them merge into one? Uh, the film really doesn't tell you. There's no way you could say the film decides on that. Long for a change. It's time for a change. Yeah. If a, a gangster had appeared in the Rutan pop star's um, crumbling mansion, um, one can see how things might have evolved like that. So it, it has a very similitude, I think. Um, what a dreadful question. What do I think of it? What's it all about? I don't know. Do you know what it's about? <laughs> you have to decide. You have to think. It's a film that really takes you through it and at the end says, you decide. We were using the times to, in a way, allow us to have an expression of these ideas, of looking at society, people, the establishment. I've seen loads of films from, from that period again, just to kind of see how I felt about them. And they all have got like a time kind of warp. And performance is completely timeless and it's extraordinary. And every time you discover something new and it's almost kind of uh, transcendental, really. And that's probably what makes it a kind of such a great film. This film crystallized a lot of things that happened in the 60s. It's the film which really suggested that there was a kind of utopian other world there. And it's also the best British gangster film that's ever been made. And it's the juxtaposition of those two films that make it such an extraordinary classic. I have nothing else. <laughs> I have some clips we could play, but I would, I would, if people want to see my take, they can go to my Patreon, yeah, yeah. see Cold Hollywood 2, or... Uh, but yeah, you somebody I had never even heard of, you know. But I, again, like I, I've never really looked into anybody except for like uh, who was that guy that was associated with Manson? Then I think uh, is associated with Lucifer Rising as well. Bobby, yeah, I've never really like looked into anybody that was associated with that movie. Might be interesting now if I uh, take a look at the cast, and see who they knew, yeah, involved with. I mean, I think Buzelay was supposed to be Lucifer. 
in that, and then he killed the guy uh, Gary Hinman in in Malibu area. But I, I cover uh, Boozley had a lot to say about Kenneth Anger because he lived with him. So I include all that stuff in Children of the Beast too. My book Children of the Beast, which uh, I had like eight hundred. I like footnotes in Children of the Beast. It was, I did so much research. I didn't even want to read for like a week, like a month after. Oh, I, I couldn't even that. imagine. Yeah. I was just done. I get, I get like that with just oh, doing too many podcasts in a week. I don't want to do it anymore. Oh. So I could just imagine with writing a book, it's even worse. Uh, do you want to uh, you want to plug anything else? You want to let everybody know where they can find your stuff again? Yeah, just uh, you can find it on my website, WilliamRamseyInvestigates.com. You can have signed copies of my books. You can buy my books there. All all my uh, information. A lot of research is really on Patreon now. I've uploaded a lot of stuff there and you can watch all my films there or you can go to Vimeo and watch it. And uh, my podcast is William Ramsey investigates. Okay. You can find it on iTunes. And yes. I have a bunch of your links in the bottom. I might need your Patreon. So if you want to later, you can send me the link and I'll include it and I'll include it in the bottom. And uh, thank you very much for coming on, William. That was uh, was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah I asked you to, if you were able to come on, and he's like, what are you doing today? And I was like, oh, I'm actually going to be free in a little bit. So that worked out great. Thank you. It did, yeah. Thank you. Thanks yes. for having me. It's good of to be course. with you again. And thank you, Lisa, for jumping on with us Absolutely. in such a, such a short notice as well. It's pretty yeah. much like, are you available in an hour? <laughs> That, that's exactly so, how it went. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, thank you, everybody, too, who jumped in on the live. A lot of people commenting in the chat also. That is what's up. Thank you very much. That's why I go live. If you're catching the live uh, after the fact, check out the chat when it's up and available. There's always some really good, interesting stuff going on in there. And definitely some, I have some info to check out as well. Uh, all the links for everything else is in the bottom. And that is the end of another NY Patriot show. And until the next one... Everybody be well. Later.